Well, welcome once again to Graceway Baptist Church in our Sunday school hour. And um, some of you are looking and go, man, are you wearing the same thing for three weeks? Actually, we're recording all of this at one time. And so I appreciate Gary and his help and putting all of this together. And now we've got it done. It's all finished for the month. And uh, I appreciate you tuning in. It's good to be with you again. And we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham again. And we're going to be looking today at the blessing of victory. Victory is a nice thing. The only problem with victory is you have to go to battle in order to get it, right? Uh, you don't win World War II without going to war, right? And so you don't just sit back over and go, Hey, we could have had a war today and we didn't. Woo, we're victorious. It doesn't really work like that, even though you can prevent some battles and should and wisdom comes in on that. But at the same time, when it really comes to victory as we know it, we've got to have a war and we've got to have uh, something that goes right and we've got to win in that. And uh, a lot of believers today talk about victory. We sing about victory, oh, victory in Jesus, except we're the draft dodgers. We don't ever want to go to war. And we're the ones that when we're in war, we lay down our weapons and we run. And when we're in war, we try to fight in our own strength and then wonder why we get our tails whipped, that, that type of thing. You know what I mean on that. And uh, so we want to talk about victory. God wants us to have the victory. And in fact, it's the victory of Christ that we are actually supposed to have. Let's uh, look at the uh, introduction here because we're going to look at Genesis 14, 13 through 25. Kind of an interesting story. And let's think about this. Battles come our way frequently and sometimes without our choice. And I'm sorry, you can't just have a time where in your morning devotion you say a certain thing or do a certain thing and that makes the devil and all of his demons go away for the entire day. Warfare is constant. Warfare is every day, all the time. Warfare is life, actually. And you've got to have your armor on, not just when you see the approaching warriors. You've got to have it on all the time because the enemy is sneaky and they ambush you and they set you up and they guide you and they wait for you and they pounce on you. <clears throat> and uh, like a roaring lion, think about how lions hunt. And uh, think about how that happens. Sometimes you may be minding your own business and all of a sudden you get pounced on like a zebra where a lion comes up behind him and jumps on him and all of a sudden you've got claws in your flesh and he's biting at your neck and trying to pull you down and uh, you didn't ask for it, didn't anticipate it. You've got to be on guard all the time and warfare is not just a thing you do every now and then it's not just a ritual you perform in the morning and all of that it's something you do every single day 24 7 you are to be on guard and you're to be vigilant in all of that battles come sometimes they come and they're they're purely spiritual and those are pretty pretty terrible when you have to fight. Sometimes they have a face. Sometimes they have a circumstance. Sometimes they're based on a, a decision that is made. And uh, all of these things happen. Well, Abram's going to get drawn into a battle that he didn't ask for. So, picking up in the introduction, Abram was not directly involved in this fight, but the fight found him. That happens. His nephew Lot had to be rescued. And Abram had no choice. He had to do something. This is his flesh and blood. So after his successful campaign, 
Then he is met by two kings. Several kings mentioned in here, but two that meet up with Abram. And one is righteous and one is very evil and they meet up with him. And both wanted to quote unquote bless Abram. Did you know the devil wants to bless you? Now, I, I think you know well enough that that's not really the case. So let's put it in quotes. The devil wants to bless you so that he can lead you into a curse, so that he can lead you into destruction. The thief only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But it's, disgui it's disguised as a blessing. And there are some times where God leads us into something. We go, oh, that looks horrible. And yet the end is going to be blessing without the quotation marks. It's exactly what it is supposed to be. And uh, the enemy deceives. The enemy lies in all of this. So in this, Abram had a choice. He had won the victory. Okay, we'll talk about the battle and what happened. But would he maintain it? And would it be a fleeting moment of joy or would he live in victory? One blessing must be rejected. You can't have it from both kings. Okay? So sometimes people, when they share testimonies, they talk about a time, oh, there was a time when I had real victory in the Lord. But what about now? Oh, oh no, no, I haven't had real victory for a long time. But boy, that one 25 years ago was, whew, man, it was great. Oh, I was so right with God and I was walking on a cloud and I was just really encouraged and loving the Lord and enthusiastic. Well, what's happened since then? And uh, we don't intend to really live in victory. And sometimes about the time we win a battle, I heard Chuck Swindoll say one time that he was in the Marines like my dad was and they were taught that whenever you win a victory, when you take the hill, so to speak, then you set up a hasty defense because you're never more vulnerable than when you win a victory. And maybe you've experienced that. Your victory led you to some great defeat, some terrible decisions. And you just assumed it was always going to be that way and the enemy really clobbered you, messed up your life. And... Uh, so we'll try to talk a little bit about that because Abram was vulnerable. Right after he won this victory and rescued Lot, then the king of Sodom is there. You don't want the blessing of the king of Sodom, but there's also the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And uh, you know he's famous because the Bible says Christ is a priest after the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek. And um, so, you know, who do we want? And whose blessing looks best to us? And I'm so glad that for Abram, he could see through the king of Sodom and he could see to Melchizedek. So all of this is what is going on. And, and, and what really matters here is not the battle and not the successful rescue of Lot, but it's actually what happened here when Abram is confronted by these two kings. What's he going to do? Is he going to maintain the victory or is he going to enter into defeat? There's a lesson in there for us. Be careful. Be careful. Just because it's coincidental doesn't mean it's of God. Just, it doesn't mean that, the, oh, it must be the sovereignty of God because I wasn't looking for it and here it came. Well, Abram wasn't looking for the king of Sodom either. Didn't expect it. And so here he comes and I'm glad he rejected it. <coughs> so let's look in uh, verse 14. 
Now when Abram heard that his brother, meaning Lot, relative is, is probably a better way, was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. They'd been with him since they were babies. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is um, north, excuse me, north of Damascus. And so he brought back all the goods, all the goods, notice the word all there, and also brought back his brother Lot, his relative Lot, and his goods as well as the women and the people. But when they took captive, they took everybody, didn't they? Verse 17, And the king of Sodom, this is the meat of this, went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shadolamor and the king's who were with him. They are the ones who had captured Lot. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. Kind of a picture there, right? And he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom says to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. You know, a lot of families operate on that principle. As long as I have wealth, as long as I have a job, as long as I have a career, who cares what happens to the kids, right? Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, Now listen to this faith. I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. He learned something when he was with Melchizedek, didn't he? Because he repeats him. Verse 23, That I will take nothing from a thread of a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. And then he names them, Aner, Eskel, and uh, Mamre. And take, uh, let them take their proportion or their portion in all of this. And so uh, Abram says, but I'm not going to touch it. Okay? So I'll let these guys who allied with me, who fought with me, they can have the spoils of battle, but not me. Because I don't want anyone to ever say he got this from the king or because of the king of Sodom and his generosity. Abraham was focused on all of the glory is going to go to the Lord. So um, let's think about this. Number one, a rebellion disrupted and disturbed the order of things. That's found in uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And we find here that in this ancient time, this uprising 
against uh, uh, powerful kings. Why did that happen? Well, there was a guy named Shador Lamor. He was kind of the leader of an alliance of other kings, and they controlled a big portion of the region. And there were four of them, uh, four kings, and then there were five kings that they controlled. And the five kings finally refused to pay tribute tax money to Shador Lamor. And Shador Lamor, I'm giving you just a nutshell in this, Shador Lamor then attacked them and he defeated the rebellion of those five kings. So four kings beat five kings and took over their land. And uh, in doing so, then the coalition gained actually more territory. People hated this as you can imagine. Now, the Jordanian kings, they fled, and Shador Lamor plundered uh, all of the cities that are there. Okay, So as these other kings flee and they run, they're afraid of being executed, I suppose, then Shador Lamor says, okay, whatever you abandon, that's just more for me. And whatever territory you leave, that's just more for me. And they start growing in that area. And they start moving in toward the area of Sodom. And they're conquering land, taking over things, burning things down, uh, accruing wealth for themselves, enslaving people, that type of thing. All of this is happening. They're wicked, evil people. Not that the people of Sodom were good, Sodom were good but these are also wicked people. And they're getting everything that they can and everyone that they can. And the more the Jordanian kings would flee, then the further Shador Lamor and his kings would go. More and more and more. Kind of makes you think of Hitler in Europe in World War II, uh, that type of thing. And so uh, there was nothing to stop them. And so when they get near Sodom and they are plundering everything there, who lives near Sodom? Remember Lot had taken the well-watered plain and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And he's a resident there. And he gets captured in all of this that's going on. These kings are powerful, powerful. And they're just moving and rolling and no one is stopping them. So they take Lot. Now Abram didn't know about all of this because remember he and Lot had separated. And Lot is in one place and Abram is in another place. And they, you know, couldn't uh, communicate in the way that we are used to. And so this happens and Lot is taken captive without Abram's knowledge. Okay, So number two, Abram then discovers that Lot had been captured by Shador Lamor and these other kings that are in there. So look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, uh, brother of Eskel and brother of Aner, and uh, they were allies with Abram. Okay, now verse 14. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, this is the first he knows about it. Okay, so this man escapes from the same place where Lot was, and for some reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, he goes to Abram and he says, Abram, you got a problem. You know your nephew Lot? Yeah, he's been captured. How do you know? Because I was captured too. What are you doing here? I escaped. And I wanted to let you know what all was going on. So this fugitive 
from the powerful alliance of eastern kings sought out Abram and informed Abram that Lot was captured and, you know, all of that, Abram is going, well, I had no idea about it. We don't live or work together um, anymore. And I want you to think about this. Lot was captured because he chose the best of the land, the well-watered plain. Can you see the sovereignty of God in all of this? What if Lot had said, no, Abraham, you go first, and Abraham had chosen that? Abram would have been captured, and the blessing, once again, would be threatened. But it didn't happen that way. Lot selfishly chose the best for himself, and that kept Abram out of the path of Shadolamor and all of these other kings who are gobbling up territory and taking up captives. But you can also see the fact that Lot, in his choice of the best for himself, he actually entered into danger, didn't he? So our choices do have consequences. So had Lot not headed towards Sodom and the well-watered plain, he would not have been captured. Okay, number three. Abram became a force to be reckoned with. You remember God said, I will make you great. Well, Abram so far in this region, he's there and people know that he's there and he's a wealthy man and they know that, but he's still a stranger. And he's not really anything that anybody thinks much about or is afraid of or anything like that. But all of that changes now. Abram became a force to be reckoned with. In verses, the last part of 14 through 16. Now look what he did. He armed his 318 trained servants, and that's uh, meaning trained in warfare, trained in battle, trained with the sword and all of that. And uh, these are going to be extremely loyal because they were born and raised in his own house. And so he went in pursuit as far as Dan. I've been to Dan. And uh, it's way up north in Israel. It's at the point where uh, Mount Hermon is. You've read about that in the scripture. It's where the mouth of the Jordan River is. It's very beautiful and uh, interesting up there. And we saw the gates and the walls of the city of Dan. And we saw the gates where Abraham, when he went there, the gates he would have walked through, the gates that he would have used when he was going into uh, Dan. Now later, Dan became a place of wickedness and idol worship and we got to see a place where they actually had built their idols and where those idols would have been and where the people would have worshipped them. And so uh, it became known and a saying in ancient Israel, whenever they would say something like, uh, oh, I've been from Dan to Beersheba, it, it means that they've covered the whole nation, the whole territory. And they would use that to say things like, uh, maybe if you lost an ink pen and you were trying to find it and uh, you were looking, instead of saying, I've looked everywhere, you might say, it's kind of a hyperbole here, I've looked from Dan to Beersheba. If you uh, traveled and fought and uh, were in a war and they say, where were you stationed? Oh, we were from Dan to Beersheba. That means you were everywhere. Kind of like the old Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere, man. You know, you could put in an Israeli version of that from Dan to Beersheba. So when it says that Abram went to Dan, he went way up. Remember, before the direction was south, south, south. Now he's way up north. He would spare no... Uh, expense to go rescue Lot. That's how great his love for Lot was. Verse 15. Now when he gets there, 
he divides his forces against them by night. That means he split them up. Me and my group are going to attack from this, uh, from the south, let's say, and you and your group go around on the other side of the city and attack from the north. They were going to confuse them and hit them from uh, both areas. Going to do it at night when it's not expected, when it's difficult to try to fight, when people are asleep, when people are off guard. And it says that they, they attacked, his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So they, they go up over into Syria uh, as they are doing this. There is a pursuit and a chase. And it says that he brought back all the goods and he also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Okay? Now when you do this against this four-king, eastern-king coalition that has been controlling everything, and now who is this? This herdsman? This nomad? This stranger from Ur of the Chaldees? And he's come up here and he's whipped us? And he's taken back what we have taken? Who in the world does he think he is? Now all of a sudden... Abram goes from being just a guy who keeps a few goats and a few sheep, and he seems to be doing pretty well with it. Now, all of a sudden, he's a force to be reckoned with. He is a power in the land and in that area, just like those uh, other kings that fled and the kings that were controlling everything. Now you have to add Abram in the mix. He is a power broker in the land because God said, I'm going to bless you. And if anybody doesn't bless you, they're in trouble. If they do bless you, I'll bless them as well through you. And I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And we don't always think about Abraham as being, Abram, excuse me, again, uh, being a military force or anything like that. But now he's just become all of that. And so there he is going up to Dan, strategizing and all of that and conquering them and being in hot pursuit of Lot's captors and he won the victory. In other words, he was successful in liberating Lot against all odds here. So this is a part of God's promise to make Abram great. Okay, point number four. Abram shared the blessing with those who allied with him. Okay? I will bless those who bless you, those who are your allies, those who are your friends, those who work with you instead of working against you, and I will curse those who curse you, those who are against you, work against you, fight against you. They're going to find out they're not just dealing with Abram, they're dealing with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what did Abram do when all of that happened? And he has the victory, and now he's become maybe even more powerful, more wealthy, more well-known, more prestigious, more admired, all of that. Well, he shares the blessing with the people who worked with him. Verses 17 through 24. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. He certainly wasn't an ally. <clears throat> that is the king's valley. After his return from the defeat of Shador Lamor, nobody else had been able to defeat this clown, but Abram was. Okay? and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and if you'll notice when you see the word Jerusalem spelled out, the last part of it is S-A-L-E-M, king of Salem. 
uh, we think that Melchizedek, king of Salem, that was a, an old ancient name for Jerusalem. Okay? And uh, Salem means peace, and Jerusalem means city of peace. And he brought bread and wine, a symbol of abundance, a symbol of blessing. And it also kind of reminds us even of the Lord's Supper and that kind of thing. But that's for another time. And uh, he was the priest of God most high. Not just a priest of some local deity or idol or something like that. He was a true priest of God. Verse 19. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram, God of, of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Let's make sure Abram knows where the credit goes. Jesus said at one point, Apart from me ye can do nothing. When are we going to learn that? And when are we going to learn that Jesus is not just our last resort, He's our sympathetic high priest. He's ready to give aid to us at any time, especially when we're tempted. But we've got to handle it ourselves and no wonder we get whipped. And no wonder Abram was victorious in this because he uh, did it in the power and the strength of the Lord. And Melchizedek wants him to know that, wants him to be reminded, you didn't do this. You didn't do this yourself. This is from God. So what Abram does is he takes out of the spoils that he has gotten from this defeat of Shador Lamor and the other kings, and he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek, the priest. Okay? That's a generous thing, isn't it? And uh, that's the first act of generosity. He gave a tithe, the tenth of all. In verse 21, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Now, Sodom... Um, is the one where he's not selling, he's buying. He's gaining. He's got an angle here, and it's not pure, and it's not righteous. And he says, give me the people, the persons, and take the goods for yourself. As if Abram is going to go through all of that to rescue Lot, and then give Lot and all of the people that he just rescued to the king of Sodom, so that he can keep all of the stuff, all of the goods. Okay? I remember a song, it was a contemporary Christian song that talked about uh, how in our culture we use people and we uh, love things. Use people and love things. And then it said what we ought to be doing as Christians is loving people and using things. We, we just get everything backwards. And so Abram here, it's like he's going to, oh, well, good deal, sure, take them all, and then I can have more stuff than I've ever had before, as if Abram were just a materialistic, uh, fleshly-oriented type person. But he wasn't. He's just been with Melchizedek. And so he uh, doesn't want to receive anything from Sodom, and he uh, says to the king of Sodom, Your blessing means nothing to me. Oh, if we could get that and understand that from this world. This world has nothing to offer us. It's God who gives us. It's God who provides. It's God who blesses. It's God who owns all of it. Like Melchizedek says, the possessor of heaven and earth. That hasn't changed. It's all God's. And everything you have belongs to God. So trust him. 
and follow him in everything that he does. Now notice he says in verse 23, I will take nothing, not even a thread of your sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. And then he makes an exception. The only thing I ask, verse 24, let these young men who have fought with me, let them eat and let them enjoy all of the spoils of battle, but none of it for me. No thank you. No thank you. Everyone else, but not me. Now notice all of this, whether it is the tenth of the spoil that he gave to Melchizedek, Abram could have kept it. And if it is the spoils that he gives to all of the young men who fought with him, he's rewarding them for their faithfulness, for their effectiveness. And he could have said, no, this is all mine. You, you can't have any of it. They were, after all, slaves. And yet you find Abram here being generous to all of them because he knew where his blessing had really come from. He knew that he couldn't claim it because it was a gift from God, not something to be held on to, but something to share. So when are we going to learn that? Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. I didn't say that. Jesus said that in the Gospel of Luke, right? Paul said, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. And so we think that means we get to keep everything, we get to use everything, we are favored and we don't have to do anything. No, we need to learn to be generous and to be stewards of it because we don't own it, God owns it, and we need to be faithful with it and we need to be generous as well. Now that's easier for some people. Some people just give away everything and it doesn't bother them and then other people struggle with it. I don't know where you are or anything like that, but it all begins when we understand that we are blessed of God, that God gives us victory and God gives us the life that we have. What a blessing it is to be born in America. You could have just as easily been born in the slums of Mumbai, India. You could have just as easily been born in the Soviet Union or in China or North Korea or something like that. You could have easily been born in Iran or Iraq or something like that, but you weren't. You're here in America. You've been blessed. You live better even in poverty than most people in the world will ever live in abundance. We have freedoms. We have rights. We have privileges. All of these kind of things. And we need to be a steward of it. That's why I encourage you. It's an election year. Be informed and vote. That is a privilege that God has given to you. Take what you have because all of us just about I know there may be some exceptions, but just about all of us have more money than we actually need to simply put a roof over our heads and fill our bellies. And so what do we do with that? We need to share it. We need to be generous with it. And so if you're down to your last dollar, don't spend it. Give it away. At least give part of it away. And uh, the Lord will bless those who give. And try to cultivate a generous spirit with all that you have like Abraham did. You've got things that you can and should share with other people and it may even be money. Hear what I said there? It may even be money. Maybe something much more than that. Friendship, hospitality, uh, encouragement, attention, prayer, those kind of things. 
And so uh, we think about the kings that met Abram after his victory. There's a temptation here. The king of Sodom or the king of Salem that wants to actually bless him. One wanted to bless him and one was wanting to curse him. Melchizedek blessed Abram and uh, the one true God and gave God the credit for Abram's victory. And that encouraged Abram to want to give because he knew what all God had done for him, gave him an offering of the spoils. And Melchizedek was a priest of God. He was righteous. He was holy. And the king of Sodom, just the opposite, wanted to take credit for Abram's prosperity. And uh, he probably saw some type of opportunity to profit and maybe even to build an alliance with Abram and become more powerful. Now, all of a sudden, Abram has become very important to the king of Sodom. And before this, he could have cared less. But Abram, here's the key, wanted the blessing to be unblemished and he wanted his testimony to be crystal clear. Now the king of Sodom said to, uh, Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. You can have them. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will take, not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And so Abram showed his, uh, allowed his allies to take what they pleased. And it reminds me, why couldn't Abram have taken all of that? Well, there's an old saying and phrase that needs to judge our lives. And that's this, others may, but you cannot. And God has a will for you. And there may be some things he allows other people to do, but he says for you, nope, don't put your hands to that. Don't get involved in any of that. Well, why not? They do, because I'm protecting you and I'm going to use you and this is going to be for your good. Others may, but you cannot. And uh, so Abram here is serving God, victorious in God, and now he's going to maintain his victory. And in conclusion, remember this, we can be assured that God's promises and decrees will be accomplished when we walk with God and when we know His Word, we can see that uh, we can see through the traps and the false blessings that uh, you know we might be fooled by. But we can determine what's good or bad, right or wrong, by one thing, and that is the Word of God. If you don't follow the Word of God, you're going to be fooled. Okay, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, "There's a way that seems right to a man." but its end is the ways of death. And you're never going to see that without the Scripture. It may feel good. It may, your gut may tell you to do it. Your friends may tell you this is a great deal. Follow the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And you need that when the king of Sodom shows up. Psalm 119, 101 says, I have refrained my feet from every evil way. Why? That I may keep your word. And that is the bottom line. Keeping the word of God. That's what faith really is. Knowing the word and keeping the word. Not taking it out of context. Not taking and isolating verses that don't mean anything. And trying to force them like a, a round peg into a square hole. So that you obligate God to do something for you. No. 
Just finding out what God says, what he means, and following the truth of the word of God, like Abram did in this situation. That's the way to victory. The devil only will take you into defeat. God will take you into victory. Well, thank you for your time. And may the Lord bless you. And I pray that this year is going well. And as you finish up this month, I pray that we go into February with joy and with victory for the cause of Christ. Thank you, teachers, again. And thank you for those of you who are watching this to keep up with it. And may the Lord bless you until next time.